Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 471 through 473, which will cover manga chapters 562 through 564. And the balance of the war continues to teeter back and forth as both sides unleash more and more devastating attacks against each other for control of the base. So, the synopsis the Marines begin to shift the momentum of the war back in their favor with the enactment of their plan to force the pirates with the pacifistas. Into a trap in the bay while Admiral Akainu finally steps into the battle to unleash his catastrophic powers. Alright, so differences. There are only a couple that I noticed. So the first one is we get to see a bit of Squad's past, whereas in the manga we don't actually get to see any of it. We're told about it a little bit, but we don't actually get to see any of it. So this definitely gives a little bit more context as to how Squad met Whitebeard and how he came to join the crew, or at least his alliance. And then the other difference is, is the moment after Whitebeard flips the entire base after John Giant attacks him has a few extra scenes of people react to it, re- reacting to it, like Kobe and Helmeppo, as well as a sequence where Luffy is saved by Jinbei from falling down a chasm. Now in the manga, Whitebeard's attack on John Giant seemed like it was Almost a combo where he flips the base to throw him off balance and then immediately jumps in to quake punch him in the gut. And so this is definitely extended in the anime just to draw time, seems like. But yeah, those were really the only differences that I saw. So let's get into the episodes themselves. And I think the first thing I want to talk about with the now widespread use of the pacifistas is the place that sort of futuristic te- technology has in the world of One Piece. Like you see, One Piece has built its world in an obviously heightened reality with some crazy fantastical things. But for the most part, it seems to base its technology around when pirates lived with most things modeled after, you know, around the 16th, 17th century level of technology with things like flintlock guns, with infinite ammo, albeit uh, ships sailing with wind power and minimal use of electricity. Even most of the machines in the world of One Piece, they're still very much the older style, mechanically driven tech, like steam or wind powered. In essence, it's a very grounded, non-modern or non-futuristic technology. And this definitely started to take a slight turn when Frankie was introduced with all of his cyborg style enhancements. But even then, his body still seemed more mechanical with it being powered by cola and not some sort of power source like electricity. And we've all we've also had a naturally occurring technology with like the dials found in Skypea. But again, that comes from a more fantastical realm of tech and not so much technological, like futuristic technology or modern day technology. Now with the pacifistas, I feel like we're at a turning point in the series where we will begin to see the rise of more text-based things in the world with these sort of semi-autonomous android robots capable of immense power and durability. And even though they have things like speakers and TV screens, much of that is attributed to the magic or fantastical elements of the Dendemushis. They're sort of these like mysterious creatures that have magical powers to be able to transmit things via radio waves and stuff like that. And what's cool about this is with much of the technology found in One Piece, it seems like we are getting to see a glimpse into the prime of the technological revolution in One Piece because so far, every time something like this, especially pertaining to Vegapunk, is brought in, it's always sort of cutting-edge technology as if the world is seeing this for the first time. And you see that reaction from both the common citizens as well as the pirates and the marines when they look at all this crazy technology that's being used. 
Now, this level of inconsistency, I guess if you want to call it, in the technological advancement of One Piece rubs some people the wrong way, saying it's hard to pin down what era of tech everything is based in. But to that, I say, if they want an explanation more in-depth than Oda creates, you know, what he needs to serve the story better, I think it does have a lot to do with how segmented the world of One Piece is, and that's why you can get a small village like in the East Blue with seemingly no tech and have a well-equipped and technologically advanced world government who has all these new technologies. And that in and of itself is also by design by the world government, I think, if you want to think about it from an in-universe canon, is that the world government, in an effort to maintain control over people by hoarding these newer technologies just for themselves to suppress any sort of possible uprisings by the pirates, the revolutionaries, or even any other enemies, or just the common folk, you know, it basically helps them maintain power to not dis- distribute some of these technological you know, technological advancements. And so it can sort of be explained away by an accessibility and availability problem. I mean, if I remember correctly, the first time we see an actual screen canonically, like an actual like projection screen or a TV screen in One Piece is on Sabodi, which would make sense since they are the closest to the Marine headquarters and Marijua. And we see even more technological advances throughout the series. And it's always played off as, as this being new technology. And yeah, I kind I like that. You know, I don't necessarily need One Piece. I mean, it's already crazy as it is. But I don't necessarily need One Piece to be anchored in one area of technology. Because it is a fantasy world. It's not, it's not like a heightened reality uh, of our past world. You know, it's not... It's not a retelling of the pirate age from from Earth, you know, back in the 16th and 17th centuries. Now, getting back to the story itself, we see the pacifistas trying to pincer the Whitebeard forces, but Luffy is still struggling to get to Ace, having to deal with the force of nature that is Kizaru. But he gets some extra help from a group of Whitebeard pirate commanders, including our first speaking appearance of the 16th Division Commander Izo who doesn't play too large of a part here, but definitely remember this character for the future. And Izo does have a really unique appearance. I mean, all the commanders do, but Izo in particular has a very traditionally old, like, feudal Japan dress, yet he's using pistols, uh, which is a very interesting uh, combination, because you usually see people who are dressed like that use swords, as they are very similarly looking like samurai. But anyways, unfortunately, all these matchups that were started in the last set of episodes, they're interrupted by the Marines' secret plans. And the Marines attempt to ki- cut off the feed of- to the public so as to not show their underhanded tactics. But, hilariously, Buggy and his gang have commandeered one of the video Dendemushis and is the lone feed that's still left up running. And it's not too long before our first major twist in the war. And, and it's a brutal way to start it off with Squard out of nowhere stabbing Whitebeard in the back or I guess in the chest (laughs) metaphorically in the back literally in the chest Uh, this is where all those minor scenes with Squard start to pay off as he deals a pretty massive blow to Whitebeard before he even enters the battlefield now I don't think anyone thought that Whitebeard was going to go down as a result of this but it certainly weakens him considerably especially when taking into account his already declining health as the you know due to his old age and we've seen that hinted for a while now ever since his introduction uh, around the Jaya arc. 
Now, once the initial shock of this wore off, I think most of us, we immediately thought there must be a reason Whitebeard let Squard stab him because just a few episodes ago, we saw someone as strong as Ace unable to lay a finger on Whitebeard even when he was asleep. And there's no way in hell someone like Squard could catch Whitebeard by surprise. And we'll later go on to see that Marco has this sort of same line of thinking as well. However, Crocodile's reaction to this was surprisingly powerful as he's furious with Whitebeard and just let himself, you know, how he just let himself get wounded like this after Crocodile has been trying to take down Whitebeard most of his adult life after losing to him. And to see Whitebeard go out like this no doubt pisses him off because it makes his loss and all of his efforts all meaningless. Crocodile and Whitebeard's relationship is very interesting and it's one that has obviously not been explored much but there is clearly a great deal of history between these two and crocodile to me is one of the most fascinating villain slash anti-hero characters at this point in one piece he's such a layered and complex character when you look at even just the tiny bits we've gotten so far we've discussed this in the miss golden week cover story but crocodile has had an, has had ambitions of becoming the pirate king just like luffy in the past but that was dashed, and I think it's safe to assume that given the level of animosity towards Whitebeard, that he was, in fact, the one that dashed White uh, Crocodile's dream of becoming the Pirate King. And this is he's the person that's basically he's referring to when he's talking down to Luffy and Arabasta about how Luffy kept talking about wanting to become the Pirate King and how foolish that is, and that he's not prepared for what's up ahead. And while this is slight spoilers, this will later be confirmed by an SBS answer Oda would give in volume 78. And throughout this war, you almost get the sense that while Crocodile is not nearly as benevolent as pirates like Luffy or Shanks or even Whitebeard, he's not necessarily pure evil either. As we see throughout this war, he's willing to help, but always hides it under the guise that he's doing it for his own selfish reasons. Kind of similar to how Vegeta behaves during the Frieza and Android sagas. I don't think Crocodile would become a full-blown hero like, you know, like Vegeta does in Dragon Ball, but their behaviors at this point are kind of similar. In any case, back from that tangent, it turns out this was all an underhanded trick thought up by Sengoku and carried out by Akainu in an effort to confuse and turn all of the 43 allied crews against Whitebeard. And it almost works as you see the confusion start to mount among the allied pirates. While it's not explicitly stated, you can see that Whitebeard probably already sensed something was weird with Squared and he purposely let himself get stabbed as losing the trust of his allies would be far more detrimental to the war than him being wounded. And I have my thoughts about this in that I think Whitebeard knew that A, he was strong and, strong and tough enough to withstand a wound like that and still fight effectively, which we will see he absolutely does, but also that B... He knew his time was coming. He's already getting up there in age and is constantly on life support when he's not in battle. And a lot of it is that he's okay making this potentially his last stand and leaving the future to the younger generations. And we'll, we'll get to see more of that as the war progresses. But just when you think Whitebeard is going to get angry, he instead hugs Squard and forgives him Again, reiterating the themes of the sins of the father don't make the person that we've already explored with Robin and Frankie yet again. Your parents or your potential for evil does not mean you will head down that same path. It's all about choice and action. 
And that truly, you know, that's what defines you and who you are. And so that theme here manifests in Whitebeard. He makes Spore realize that his blind hatred for Roger has made him lose sight of the fact that he was not—he has nothing against Ace. And in fact, Ace has done nothing wrong and that they are actually, in fact, really good friends and even family. And this really shows you who the true villains are. It's for sure Akainu and the Marines and Sengoku. I mean, we just witnessed Akainu earlier mercilessly murder one of his subordinates for trying to desert. And now using this underhanded tactic to destabilize Whitebeard's forces while Whitebeard not only forgives Squad for literally stabbing him, but also gives his allies an out if they do want to leave. But they all choose to stay. And that's the difference in how the Whitebeard pirates instill loyalty. Whitebeard has built his family up through kindness, compassion, and fairness that they all want to lay down their lives for him, whereas the Marines are often left questioning their own loyalty, morality, and duty. And we've seen this a million times with Kobe, Helmetpo, Garp, Smoker, Tashigi, Saul, Aokiji. Like, we've seen many Marines, like dedicated ones too, question sometimes what the Marines and the world government do and what they make them do. And we've, we've seen all these seemingly dutiful people you know, who are committed constantly question what if what they're doing is the right thing. And yeah, there's no freedom to choose when it comes to the Marines. And of course, this theme will for for a long time be explored as we go through the series. And I am actually very interested to see what Oda's answer is for this at the very end of the series. I think I know what the answer is, at least based on what I've seen throughout the entire series so far. But it is very curious to see what he'll do with the organizations of the Marines and the world government at the end of the series. Now, going back to the themes of what is just and unjust in One Piece, as well as Doflamingo's monologue, we see just how dirty the Marines are in their tactics and how wholesome the pirates are in their response. It's such a powerful dichotomy. It's really indicative when Whitebeard, the fiercest pirate in the world, is judging the world's military leaders for the morality of their tactics. You know something is wrong with, with your views when, when the pirate is left looking like the compassionate good guys and the Marines are the ruthless, dirty ones. And with that, Whitebeard is sufficiently pissed off and now is ready to enter the battlefield. And I'm pretty sure we were all collectively insanely hyped to finally see a Yonko pirate in action. I know I was. Like, when he jumps in and does that stance, oh man, it's so cool. But before moving on, though, I kind of want to talk about the Fleet Admiral Sengoku's character briefly here, because he's a very interesting Marine. Because amongst the top Marines we've seen, he sits kind of in the middle, at least at this point in the series for me. He's not quite as good as, say, Garp or Aokiji, but he's not anywhere near as ruthless as Akainu or any of the corrupt marines. From Whitebeard's comments about Sengoku, how he expected something like this, shows that Sengoku is not above using underhanded tactics, but at the same time, he uses them when it's only necessary. He seems almost utilitarian about it, more so than being fanatical. I guess my point is, is that at this point, Sengoku is a hard character to nail down exactly where his morals lie, but I don't think he's an evil person, but he's clearly limited, you know, in terms of freedom by his duty to the Marines and the world government, as well as answering to the Celestial Dragons. 
I get the sense he's a guy that means well, but is unable to see past his own duties and bureaucracy that controls him. Now, obviously, Sengoku's character will get more expanded upon more as we get through this war as well as throughout the rest of the series. But it is interesting to kind of look at who Sengoku is at this point. However, before we get into the action with Whitebeard, Oda doesn't forget to actually make this still all about his characters first and foremost, which I love, as we see what this sort of grave mistake has done to Squad. And I really like that even after what he just witnessed, he's still in so much confusion and shock that it takes him a little while to actually process what's happened. And you can even see him go through the stages of grief in rapid succession with him, in first in major denial at first while reasoning all the evidence out and finally coming to the horrible realization and then going through sort of anger and depression that he was in fact deceived and committed a massive mistake against his loving surrogate father figure. And Marco, for his part too, you can tell he's pissed beyond measure, but also forgives Squared as well and gives him a a way to make things right by taking action instead of just sitting there crying about it, which by the way is a good lesson on how to atone for mistakes. Sure, there is time to reflect and mourn, but ultimately, actions speak louder than words, especially when trying to regain trust and atoning for mistakes. With Whitebeard sufficiently pissed off about all of this underhanded trickery by the Marines, he is now on the offensive and he does not waste time in showing just how much freaking power he wields. And mind you, he's operating with a stab wound to the chest. So Vice Admiral John Giant goes out to buy time for that plan that the Marines have been cooking up, but immediately gets wrecked. And I I have to say the raw power on display here is unlike anything we've seen so far in this series. The Yonkos and Whitebeard specifically are operating on a completely different galaxy in terms of power because we see Whitebeard easily bro- block a strike from a giant Vice Admiral And then not only one-shots him, he does something so unthinkable, it's jaw-dropping the first time you see it or read it. Like that shot of him grabbing the air and just ripping it down is an image I will never forget, as he not only causes a massive earthquake, but he just literally upends the whole freaking base. Like, are you kidding me with this? How is anyone supposed to fight this man? And I'm beginning, you know, I'm being a little overdramatic, but in his prime and when he's not weakened by being stabbed in the chest, like what was this man actually capable of if on his deathbed he's basically a walking weapon of mass destruction? Like I have to say, I will never get tired of hearing that sound effect and animation of the Guraguranomi. Like there's just something about seeing something so destructive preceded by this almost quaint, almost like pinging like noise, like and then just like crash. And then that shattering sound. It's so awesome. And the shockwave from Whitebeard's punch is then sent flying past John Giant straight towards the platform. But the platform is protected by some barrier created by the three admirals. And at the time, it was never really clear how they achieved this or what they did to create this seeming barrier. Of course, we will go on to learn what this was much later in the series. Uh, At the time, I don't remember there was much discussion about this fact, but it was basically just understood they were just buff dudes with immense power. Now, I'll talk about this briefly in the spoiler section because I think it is worth mentioning. 
There's also something so damn spine chilling about when the barrier walls go up, but there's still one chance, one opening for them, and it's because Ors Jr. fought so hard to get there, and now even gravely injured, yet he's still fighting with Marco pointing this out to Squad, and you know Squad is going to have a moment of redemption later, being inspired by this, and I love that even for these small characters, I still care so much about them. Like Squad and Ors Jr. aren't necessarily major characters, but you've already care about what they're doing and their survival and the fact that Oda knows just the perfect amount of development and screen time to afford characters like this in a battle with over like three dozen significant characters is so amazing however that inspirational atmosphere turns to dread as the final admiral Akainu shows off what he's truly capable of with the magumagunomi or the magma fruit as he unleashes his devastating meteor volcano attack where he rains down boulder-sized magma fists all over the battlefield, leaving the Whitebeard forces to endure a horrifying attack from above, while the ice below them begins to melt, leaving them nowhere to escape. And there was definitely a reason Oda left Akainu for last, as we come to find that not only is Akainu the most ruthless and vicious of the three, he's also got probably the most powerful and destructive Devil Fruit ability of the three as well. Oda is definitely a master of escalation in his stories. He starts us off with the laid-back and kind of benevolent Aokiji to the in-between sort of our ambiguous Kizaru, then to the most extreme Akainu. And I'll be kind of, I, you know, I'll be honest, I kind of guessed Akainu's power too, just as I guessed Kizaru. Just using the color and sort of the elemental trends the Admiral's powers have been following. Of course, the natural choice would be fire since Aka is red, but Ace obviously already has the Meramera fruit, so the next logical one would have been another heat-based fruit, and my original guess was like a volcano or a lava fruit, and and I got pretty damn close, if, if not spot on again. So I'm going to pat myself on the back for that one. Now the episodes end here, but one last thing I wanted to comment on before ending this podcast episode is if you read the rest of the Summit War in the manga, Oda does something very unique with his paneling that he rarely does. And in fact, I think this might be the first and really the only time he actually uses this stylistic choice of having some of these moments have a complete frame around the whole page or pages. And what I mean by this is if you read One Piece, and actually for that matter, most manga in general, the images usually fit the entire page right up until the edge of the paper. And there are only frames to separate between the images with, within the page. But there's rarely, if ever, there actually is a frame that borders the whole page that separates the image from the edge at the edge of the paper. However, from this point on... He starts to employ this on many of the big impactful moments. For example, uh, from these three episodes alone, this happens when everyone is shocked to see Whitebeard had been stabbed, when Whitebeard surprisingly bends down to hug Squard, and then subsequently when he breaks the ice wall and tells everyone if they want to go, they can. Also, when Whitebeard finally enters the battlefield, and of course when he flips the base, and then when the walls come up to surround everyone, as well as the final meteor volcano attack. And Oda will continue to use this visual storytelling method for the remainder of the war. And because it's so rarely used, at least by Oda 
or even in manga in general, your eyes aren't really used to it. So when Oda does employ this, it really catches your attention more than it usually would. And this also serves to sub- subconsciously tell you this is something major, and he wants to kind of frame it cinematically, like a painting almost. But logistically, it also focuses the reader's eyes more on the center of the page and the images, as it, it basically frames the image and draws your eyes. More towards the center, and it's it's quite striking, and it has always stood out to me when reading this part of the the story, especially volumes fifty eight and fifty nine, where you see this used very often. And yeah, I mean, outside of maybe like one off times he's used this very seldomly up until this point in the series, I don't think he really has utilized it very much since then either. Like this. Framing like method that he uses uh, during the Paramount War, it's only during the war. It's very interesting how he decided to use that method for for this part of the story, and I and I really like it. Um, obviously, the reason why most mangaka don't actually employ this is because the pages on a manga they they only get so much. And so you're, they're they're trying to maximize the amount of space they have, and so they're drawing all the way up into the edge of the paper, and that's why generally you don't see this sort of framing method like you do in, say, American comics. Like when you read DC and Marvel comics, as well as any other American comic here in in the in the U.S., you see you see that more often. You see the frame because those pages are so much bigger, um, and they can fit more into it. Like you look at. You look at that and and see that yeah they are bigger. Whereas in Japan, sure the jump and like the magazine versions, they they are just as big as American comic books. However, when they get printed into the volume tankoban, they're reduced almost by more than half that size, and so they still need to be able to make it so that the images can be readable, and so they have to basically make the images as big as possible. And so therefore, they use most of the pages, and I think that's why the framing isn't there as often. I don't know specifically. I've never done any research into this, just from my sort of logistically thinking. <laughs> that's just I think why they do that. But yeah. So in closing, yeah, the tides of the war are now shifting back towards the Marines as they enact their plan to trap the pirates and rain down hellfire on them. With Luffy becoming ever desperate as Ace's execution is impending. But we'll see if he can make it there with these insurmountable obstacles ahead of him in his path. I guess we'll have to see. But yeah, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Senegal Podcast for updates of new episodes and to see pictures of my manga collection, which, by the way, is closing in on a thousand volumes. I can't believe I. Purchase that many manga books. Not all One Piece. I'm just taking. I'm just. I mean, uh, of all my manga. But anyways, um, yeah. I always wanted, as always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. Just a really minor spoiler section. But yeah, if you're not interested in that, stay safe out there, and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye. Alrighty, so spoiler section. Just two things I wanted to mention. First off, you know the story about Square getting wiped up by Roger seems a little strange because Roger never struck me as the pirate 
to like just go out of his way to attack people for no reason. So I get the sense that Squad was the antagonist or at least the aggressor in that conflict. And so you wonder why he's so pissed, you know, because he's clearly in the wrong in the sense. But yeah, I mean, we saw this kind of thing happen with Karma and that, that octopus pirate and with Whitebeard, you know, when they were trying to abduct Toki. And during Odin's flashback, and yeah, we saw that, yeah, they were the aggressors, and Whitebeard kicked their asses, and eventually they joined Whitebeard instead. Whereas Squard, I think, yeah, I think he was the aggressor, and Roger just kicked his ass. But, uh, and yeah, so that, that part always, like, I don't know, that's just my own headcanon. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it just seems like, it doesn't really seem like Roger's character. But the more interesting one is the admirals blocking the attack from Whitebeard to protect the execution tower and or the platform. And this this has been talked about for a, a little bit ever since Wano came out and the whole concept of duo was introduced by Hyogoro and the fact that you can project Haki into, uh, you know, a sort of an aura around you and, and you can project it a little bit outside of your body. And yeah, looking back and, and after hearing the explanation of Duo and how it's used, I think it's pretty clear that what happened here was that the three admirals actually used Duo to basically project their Haki to create a barrier and bounce, bounce Whitebeard's attack off of them. And yeah, I, I just thought that was really interesting that Oda clearly had a, a kind of a, I don't know, obviously he didn't come up with everything with Haki because there are certain certain things um, that happen in this battle that just doesn't make any sense with the with the sort of the concept of Haki. Like one thing that we'll discuss in the next podcast is Doflamingo versus Crocodile. Like clearly Doflamingo should have killed Crocodile when he slices his head off because we've seen in Dressrosa, granted there is a two-year time skip, so I guess maybe... Doflamingo could have learned how to do that in that time period, and he hadn't learned how to do it during the Marineford arc, but I don't know. Like You'd think that he would be able to imbue his strings with Haki at that point and just slice Crocodile's head off, unless Crocodile was expecting that attack, and again, like like um, Katakuri or Aokiji, like he formed his body around that and basically detached his own head. But it seems like, why would he do that? If that was the case, wouldn't he just like float his head above and let let that thing slice? Or I don't know. Anyways, yeah. But getting back to the main point is the fact that, yeah, I think Oda had a brief, like a rough outline of how he wanted Haki to, to behave. And Duel was a concept that he already had developed here because... It does seem like it's the same effect, and I, I yeah, I kind of like that. Kind of going back and seeing seeing this after having seen the um, Udon, you know, prison sequence in in Wano. But yep, that's all I really wanted to talk about in this spoiler section. So yeah, if you stuck around for that, thanks for listening, and yeah, I'll see you on the next episode. See ya.